Good evening to you. These guys are all big influences on me and certainly house music. No, that that does not sound band. like a yeah, life. Walk around with it. Collar popped up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, do this. this yeah. So, yeah. so let's let's go on that. I want to talk a little bit about each each of your illustrious careers because you guys have done a lot of. You've done a lot. All three of you have done amazing. You know, have had amazing contributions to what we call house music. You know, this is the vintage house show, and so part of what that is about is celebration and preservation. This is Lawrence Framing, but the celebration and preservation of Chicago house legends and Chicago house music. And I think. It's your main man, Mega, here for another episode of the Vintage House Show on WNUR-FM 89.3 and in HD1. Also streaming to you on WNUR.org and on Facebook Live, twitch.tv slash the Vintage House Show. And of course, you can catch past episodes in case you missed this one live on YouTube, the DJ channel. Com. The Vintage House Show is the premier on-air radio show and podcast dedicated to illuminating and preserving the lives, music, careers, and history of house music pioneers. We're powered by the Modern Dance Music Research and Archiving Foundation, which is the only repository in the United States dedicated solely to the study, the preservation, and the celebration of the genres of house and dance music. Our mission, in short, is to preserve the memories, to own the narrative that is Chicago-born house music so that we sustain this culture and pass it on for generations to come. Tonight's guest on the Vintage House Show is a gentleman who is an acclaimed and renowned author. He's a music journalist, and he just happens to have contributed a stirring and insightful piece to Rolling Stone magazine, particularly centered around some of Chicago's most interesting house history. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Michelangelo Matos, Matos. to the Vintage House Show. Michelangelo, how are you, sir? Good. How are you? I'm still working to refine that pronunciation of your last name. Matos. 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 Michelangelo Matos is in the building with your main man Mega here on this episode 
a vintage house. And so you might be wondering, those of you who tune in often and frequently to the Vintage House Show, who's Michelangelo? Is he a Chicagoan? Is he a DJ? Is he a house journalist? Some might even ask, is he a house head? Yes. Who is Michelangelo? So let's get into it. <laughs> you tell you tell us. I'm a journalist and a house head. I am not a Chicagoan. I love Chicago, but I have never lived there. I've lived only in the Twin Cities, also in Seattle and New York. But so I've not been to Chicago as a citizen. Um, I have partied in Chicago. I've gone to a couple of parties in Chicago, but not too many. Um, once in the mid 90s, I went to a rave that was headlined by Africa Bambata and was hosted, I think, by Miss Keir of Delight, who appeared to be pretty out of it that evening. Um, and then I came uh, the weekend after the 2016 election. I went to uh, see the back-to-back -back of, I think it was Jason Kendig, Mike Servito, and uh, the Blessed Madonna, who was then the Black Madonna. And that at Smart Bar, and that was a really lovely night. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of good energy that night, which was very necessary after that election. So uh, I love Chicago, and I've been uh, specifically a house fan since I was a teenager because I discovered house music through British magazines and you know chart pop things that was on the radio. Um, you know technotronic pump up the jam that sort of thing so i would be hearing that when i was 14 15 years old but also at that point i was buying 12 inches i was reading the press i took that part of it seriously and i loved dance music i always had so i was buying some of the more mainstream versions of that stuff but i also remember buying um definition of a track by precious which is not a Chicago record. That's a New Jersey record. Not that I knew it at the time, but that was like, you know, totally freaky, very minimal and really fun. And it was like, oh, this is the kind of dance music that I especially like. I could tell right away. So I got, when I was 16, um, I got a bunch of money for Christmas that year. It was 1991. And I remembered vividly on the 26th of December, going out with my friend and hitting the record shops in Minneapolis. And I had had my eye on this box set called The History of the House Sound of Chicago, which came out on BMG Germany. And it was 12 LPs. And it had just about everything you could want at that point. It had come out in 1988. So it was three years old at that point. But you know, I was learning about it and I always had that that mindset of if I'm going to learn about something, I should learn about it from the beginning. So this was perfect. And it was only $50 because disc 11 was missing. There were two copies of disc 10. There was a manufacturing error. So they were selling it for $50 instead of 120, which it would have been probably even used at that point because it was an import. And imports were expensive. And so I got that thing home and I was just like amazed. I heard all the really early, there's so much stuff on there. Um, you know, however shadily it was acquired. And 
or may have been acquired, I should say. <laughs> but yeah, like that thing just blew my mind. I was 16, 17 years old when I had it. And it was just like, you know, I Fear the Night by Tyree and, you know, hearing like acid poke, hearing things like, you know, the first two discs are just Frankie tracks. They're just, they're, the two discs are titled The Tracks That Built the House. And it, you know, it's, it's Candido, Jingo, it's Heat You Up, Melt You Down by Shirley Lights. Lights, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's Let No Man Put Asunder. It's, it's, and they're all, they're all like the short five minute versions that can fit onto one side of a, of a piece of vinyl. It sounds like garbage. No real DJ wants to use these records. Not to spin, no. Not to spin. Because they just sound like crap on, but for my purposes, they were perfect. So I was introduced to a hell of a lot of music that way. And I, you know, I was also really enthralled by the booklet because it had things like photos of Professor Funk, where he's like bare chested, but wearing a tie, a leather tie. Incredible. And it's just like, I'm already a Prince fanatic. So this is just like, the next level for me as a Prince fanatic. It's like, oh, wow. Like, this is a whole different matter. And plus, they didn't, they did not really in the booklet. And I was not, even though I was very, like, what we would call queer friendly now. Like, I always, like, you know, I hated homophobia always. And I was always, like, you know, a straight dude. But I was always, like, really, like, sympathetic. And, you know, about queer stuff. I was just, like. It, it was cool. And that's like part of my punk rock too, that my background, that, like I was, you know, when Nirvana hits, this is around the time Nirvana's hitting too. And it, they're just hitting that when they come out with incesticide, they say, if you're a racist, sexist, stay away from us. And I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's me. He's, and he's so rebellion. Yeah. That's, that's how I'm feeling. And so like, I'm seeing all of this, like they don't talk about the queer stuff part of it so much in the booklet but the subtext is there and i'm digging on that too even if i'm not quite understanding quite why yet you know seeing that stuff it's alluring it's weird it's interesting and it's like totally different from what you're seeing anywhere else and it's like well now i could look at it and go well of course it's queer but at that time i was just like you know seeing these crazy things like farm boy it was like whoa this scene's nuts this sounds like these records are insane well, your introduction to the genre, it was a, it sounds like it was a barrage or a term we use. You um, received a shot of the house cannon uh, mm-hmm. through that uh, yes. collection that you acquired. And that was the house cannon. That, yeah, that, that box really is the house it, cannon. Essential, yes. Essentially, that is a house cannon. Um, yeah embodied and you have reflected out you know the impact that that kind of collection can have not only the collection um but the music and the artists that were associated with with the music and um sort of that curation definitely spanned this um wide array of what we know to be uh the origins of of Chicago house music and the influences and the fact that the social connection that you spoke of is absolutely so integrated to, 
to what house is about. It's an inclusive genre, right? It's it's it about it is, and I also want to point out that in Minneapolis, there were already enough connections, enough like personal ties between Minneapolis and Chicago people that there was going to be some kind of continuum in place between Chicago House and Minneapolis DJ culture as it began to evolve. But Minneapolis always had a real thing for Chicago House in particular. I wrote about a night called uh, House Nation Under a Groove that took place at the 7th Street Entry, which is the side room of the main room in First Avenue, which, of course, is the, the Purple Rain Club. Of they had, So they basically were doing like a lights out, blackout, huge system, sternum rattling bass, the whole nine. Like Minneapolis is noted uh, worldwide, actually, I think. But Minneapolis is noted for its enormous base, for its enormous uh, sound systems. Yeah. I went to raves in the 90s and it was it was mandatory pretty much. It still pretty much is to have like 24 speakers, a whole wall of them. That's that's the Minneapolis way. Uh, that's how we get down. We we put a lot of volume out there. We put a lot of like um, and we dance. Like Minneapolis is a dancing town. People okay, get I was, I, I was going to ask. Yes, we get down. So we basically are like, I was, so I start going to raves in 1993. Okay. And it doesn't take very long for Chicago House in particular is undergoing its, you know, big second wave. It's, you know, the 90s stuff, Dance Mania, uh, the Curtis Jones axis of labels and artists all of that stuff is really prime in the twin cities rave scene because it's a big side room sound it's like the second room a lot of times is chicago house specifically chicago house okay like not just not just the visiting djs which were pretty voluminous gene ferris lived in chicago for a while or lived in saint paul for a while oh okay yeah. 90s or late 90s I know that for a fact. And he, you know, he played a lot of those parties. Um, you'd see Boo Williams and Glenn Underground. And we didn't see Sneak very often here. But, like, we heard Sneak all the damn time here. Um, radio you know, play? Played here a lot. What's that? Was it via radio play or how? No, how this, was is he this is at parties. This is in warehouse. You were hearing his records played. Yes, parties. this is the where this is the warehouse rave scene in the in the Twin Cities in the 1990s. Yes. Is there's like Chicago House's second home practically, or a second home for a, a lot second of those home artists. For Chicago House. Many, yeah, for many of those artists and DJs, they played here all the time. Their music got played here all the time. I will never forget the first time I heard uh, Feel My MF Bass. I will never forget that as long as I live. I'm in this warehouse. I think there had been some kind of a big performance on a stage or something. And then the DJ is off to the side and he opens with Feel My Motherfucking Bass in Your Face. And it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> what it's the hell is this? And then it boom, boom, you know, that right. kick. And it's just like of the kick drum. <laughs> my God, what is this record? This is just the best record I've ever heard. And so you, you know, you live for those moments. And that happened all the time with those records. I remember 
like Tommy Sunshine was somebody who lived in Chicago and he wasn't like, I don't know that he was like deep in the house scene per se, but he was, you know, a rave guy at that point, And he was starting to DJ. The first places he would play were in Minneapolis side rooms and for Woody McBride. And like, that was part of it. There were local DJs who were really on that sound, playing a lot of it. A couple of people were, who were just playing ghetto house pretty much like not, like there were DJs who would do that as a sideline. There were DJs who did that as their main thing, but yeah, there were a lot of, uh, there were promoters who specialized in parties of Chicago house, whether it be the Chicagoans or themselves uh, playing the records. But yeah, that was a big, big thing here. So I had gotten the roots of it before I started going to parties, but then I got to keep up with it for the next decade. And so a lot of the language you use and, and descriptive um, nature of that language has taken us there into these places and spaces. Tell us uh, about how you've recognized, right, your ability to sort of articulate and describe these experiences has led you to your uh, current profession. Well, I always wanted to be a music cr uh, critic. I always wanted to write about music. I had always that that would been that was always there from age 13. And I mean, I was always a fan of dance music on the radio up to that point. It's about 13, 14, where I start reading a lot more about it and start to buy 12 inches and to discover that side of things. And to realize that that's a separate side of things than is usually written about in rock history. You know, at that point, disco, I haven't connected. I'm not, you know, eventually, as I become an older teenager, I connect disco back to this stuff from the reading and also from starting to recognize samples here and there. But like, I'm, I'm always interested in music writing. I'm, you know, I'm reading Rolling Stone. I'm reading specifically Rolling Stone uh, branded anthologies, books like the Illustrated History of Rock and Roll. Still a great, great book, like full of great writing. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm learning about rock history through that. But at the same time, I'm paying attention to dance music and I don't see them as opposed things, which I think for a lot of people, they were. Um, you know, it's I'm too young to care. Minneapolis is not a big enough city for the tribes to have the sort of factionalism that they can have in other places because you are going to see the same handful of people at every show of every type. Um, there's a core of people who are genuinely interested in music and who make a point to go see it at any occasion they can. And many of those people are in the dance scene. Um, you know, that's a big part of it here. It's just like everything's intermingled because there's just no need for, there's just not enough space for there to, to, to make it and make it a thing. Interesting. Uh, because, you know, on the contrary, Chicago is, uh, very tribal sure. uh, in, in and of itself. Um, but these regional, uh, differentiators and, and nuances are, uh, I, I think important in contributing to how the music is received and embraced and integrated into the fabric of, of the societal um, acceptance, if you will, 
of these records. And so you, uh, of the music rather. And so you have always had this affinity then um, as you, you know, spent time immersed in the musical experiences for looking at how to tell the stories about some of the whys of, of how some of the records were made or how the whys of how some of these groups came together or people came out. That's early because I start writing for city pages in the late nineties. City pages is a, the alternative it was the it was the reader of the twin cities okay uh, well there was a twin cities reader and city pages two opposing all weeklies and then in 1997 village voice media bought both and killed the reader okay and city pages became the only alt weekly in town and i wrote for the chicago reader for many years as well starting in 1990 it's starting around this time as well um I'm interested in dance music. I'm paying attention to mixed CDs and new artists and whatever. A lot of it is just trickled down from the from the larger press. I'm like I'm not an insider yet or anything like that, but I start getting promos or whatever. And I'm but I know this stuff from going to parties. I'm encountering the music live. I'm dancing to the music. That so I'm intimate with it in that sense. I have a really good idea of what's going on because I'm hearing it out all the time. Um, And of course I love, and I know from my, you know, from the house sound box and from other things too, I, you know, the, the lore of it is fascinating to me always that like, I think that box set really made it so in a sense, because of, you know, those photos that, you know, here's, here are the clubs, these, you know, Frankie, here's Ron Hardy. It's like, this is incredible. Like, what a great story. It's just a great story. You know, I was, t- I remember talking once in a very different context, but I was talking once with real Marcus about the, about the Beatles. And he was just like, you know, it's the greatest story. And it's like, it is. That's, that's one of a big part of the eternal appeal of the Beatles is that, well, it's exactly the same with Chicago house. It's an incredible story. I've not heard that parallel made before, but please continue yeah. to make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true, though. It's just like these, you know, these things have resonance because of where they come from and what they tell us about ourselves and what they tell us about other people. And so that was just, you know, that was always a big part of it for me. And I had that as an advantage where I could say, I, I, I know what this guy's doing. I, I've seen him DJ, I've, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, I wasn't buying the 12 inches so much because I was like an albums guy. I was reviewing albums and I wasn't listening to mixtapes quite yet in a concentrated fashion. I was listening to officially released mixed CDs because I could review those. Other things were seen as ephemera. You didn't really want to write about that stuff so much or you couldn't get paid to write about it. Um, but I remember, so in 1999, in I went around the Twin Cities for a couple of months with this crew called the Family Works with an E, W-E-R-K-S. And they were the crew that did Chicago house parties. That, okay. that was their specialty. And it was yeah. like these mostly high school, like these young kids from inner St. Paul, a really like mixed racial, racially mixed crew of kids. And that was really fun. I wrote a long feature about it for City Pages. I was like, I want to follow these guys around and just like 
show you how a party gets thrown, like the nuts and bolts of it, like from, you know, conception to cleanup is how I pitched it. And that's yeah. pretty much what we did. And so, you know, Paul Johnson played that part. Yeah. You know, um, I was like on the, I was like, I wasn't on the ride with them. And so they were picking people up from the airport, but I was with them as they, you know, setting the warehouse up and stuff. It was a VFW hall. And so it was just like, I, so I was like encountering this stuff as stories. The whole thing to me was a story. I always thought of dance music as an ongoing story. During the pandemic, I didn't listen to DJ sets very much because to me, the element of it being a document of a living, breathing, in-person culture was missing. And I couldn't get with that, even though there were tons and tons of uh, mixes being put up because DJs had nothing else to do. And they were streaming some of their performances and that became the way of trying to forge, reforge that connection and and the experience. And it's, it's one dimensional, right. Or two dimensional. It can be be great in some ways. Like I, I tuned into a couple of things that I enjoyed, but at the same time, you know what you're missing and it's not the same. That, that interaction and the experience, certainly the pulsating uh, as you referred to it earlier, the sternum uh, impacting. Yes. Uh, but also the people percussion. Yeah, you're dancing in a space. So I, I forget. I think Robert Briscoe was the person who made this observation that the the term dancing about architecture. People say like writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Ha ha ha. Except all dancing is about architecture. You are moving in a space, a defined space. You, yes. How you move is defined by that space. That space absolutely. So yes. Absolutely. And so during the pandemic, you you listened and consumed some yeah. mixes that had been put up. Where did the book authorship occur in your journey here? So the first book was a short uh, volume for the 33 and a third series on Prince's Sign of the Times. And that was a uh, that I had heard from some basically a colleague had said somewhere that they had that they were writing a book about, uh, they were writing a book for the series. And I asked them about the series and they put me in touch with the editor. So I asked the editor and the editor told me that they were going to actually ask if I was interested. So I asked if I could do Sign of the Times and I did that. And so that was... Okay, I, I got to interrupt here. Yeah, please. Why Sign of the Times? One of my that favorite was, That was a signal record for me. That that was, you know, being 13 and getting it and just having my head expanded. Because I was already a big fan of... I was already a big music fan. And I was already, like, a Beatles fanatic. And I was listening to the classic rock canon, those albums, and, you know, loving it because they're amazing albums. But I was also like, you know, I I started to get omnivorously curious about things. And I began, you know, I'd always listened to the radio, but now I was listening to it with a much more like, with a much sharper and more critical ear. I'd always had my dislikes and distastes. And I I was, I've always been finicky, but now I was like, you know, focusing it. And so, um, you know, Sign of the, I mean, I knew I liked Prince. I knew I was a Prince fan, of course, but like I had not sat down with Prince albums the way that I would do 
in the wake of Sign of the Times because that was the album where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to actually like that had always that was like you know that stuff was everywhere. The the Prince albums up to Purple Rain were everywhere for me growing up. And sometimes that was because I was playing them and often it was because other people in my family or my house or wherever were playing them. Yeah. So I, when I heard Sign of the Times, it was just, it took like three plays to actually not lock into place because I was confused by it. I did not understand what he was doing at first because I had never encountered it. I'd never encountered its like, you know, it was like, it recalibrated my hearing and it recalibrated wow. my expectations. And it basically informed me that, okay, all of those records, those old records that Before. you heard, yes. are people are making those records now and they're not making, and they're not all like old British guys. They're fucking different people than that. You need yeah. to pay attention. So that opened it up for me in a big, big, big way. He did. Um, he commanded uh, the attention of mm-hmm. of many. Yeah. yeah, he basically it was like, oh, this is actually the best thing he's ever done. Like, this is just better than everything else, and everything else is great. So, you know, it sent me back listening to everything else, and it was just like, this is still better. Like, Jesus. <laughs> and so, so clearly yeah. a candidate for um, writing... Mm-hmm. One of the 33 and the third series yeah. pieces. And I remember actually one of the, when I was interviewing people for the underground is massive, I spoke to this guy, Rob Theakston, who is in Detroit, was in Detroit. And he had actually been second in command. He had been the, he'd, he'd been like a label manager for planet E recordings, Carl Craig's label. And so Rob, I remember, you know, I wrote that book and I've, I've because I'm a white guy from the Twin Cities and I've not lived in Detroit or Chicago, I have always, you know, had a low level fear of like being, you know, the wrong person at the wrong time or whatever. Like, you know, you know, there are there are certain there are certain easy critical things you can say about me right off the bat. So that so I'm always aware of that. So, you know. And I have a real reverence for Detroit techno and for Chicago House, so you know those things are meaningful to me. Certainly, and, certainly. and I'm and I'm. I remember talking to Rob, and he was just like, and he made reference to the to the book. He made reference to Sign of the Times because I because specifically, and this was just based on what I was listening to at the time. I compared the Ballad of Dorothy Parker to the uh, to the Cologne Minimal Techno label Perlon one of my favorite labels. Um, And he, he made some crack about, he was like, yeah, comparing, comparing Prince to Perlon. We knew you were one of us. And I was like, (laughs) all right then. I'm validated. That's fine. Well, um, you and your work certainly caught the attention of the vintage house crew. Our executive producer, Lauren Lowry, who sends her regards, um, picked you out of the crowd and said, you know, we need Michelangelo to oh, participate in um, what for us was certainly a an epic opportunity, which was to help program the city of Chicago's uh, Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, uh, Chicago House 
festival for 2022. And they charged us with um, what was a slightly challenging but um, uh, engaging opportunity, which was to try to bring forth authority on the subject from outside of Chicago to provide that perspective, to also infuse a youthful, uh, a more youthful perspective, because, you know, certainly the pioneers and icons of house music are, are veterans now. We're well-established mm -hmm. uh, group. And so to bring the three-legged stool together, if you will, of this external influence, but authoritative voice, the young uh, voice, as well as those that have pioneered um, the genre. And so we, we're fairly proud of our uh, outcome in that Chicago uh, House Festival kickoff to um, the, the festival for 2022, which took place in September. And so thank you again for yeah. agreeing to come to Chicago. Oh, and, yeah. And, it, was a, it was really interesting because I come in and there's Maurice, Joshua, whom I haven't met. I haven't met almost any of the people who were there. Um, I Hyperactive, it was another, that was somebody who was in the Twin Cities all the time. Yes. Came out here all the time. Still plays the communion party, which is a Sunday afternoon party. I cannot, my favorite party uh, in the Twin Cities. And uh, that's spring and summer Sundays in the alley of the poorhouse in downtown Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. just always great. Uh, Tatantan Devante played the uh, finale this year. And I got to, I had met him 10 years ago when I had begun work on the second book, which is The Underground is Massive. And yes. uh, I spent an evening with him and Charles Noel, AKA Archetype, and Todd Sines. These are all guys from Columbus. And Columbus had a really active, it was a small but very active scene yes. and very Detroit centric. So it was really a pleasure to get to connect with him briefly again. And of course, to dance to him again. Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, I probably got a little afield here. Sorry. No, no worries. And, because oh, and so, but, but that, but I had seen, you know, I, I'd, I'd seen hyperactive hunt like dozens and dozens of times because I went to all these parties that he played and he plays, he often plays uh communion. He, uh, he's typically one of the summertime guests at communion and, Oh, it's so much fun. That's such a great dance floor. Well, we um, had you with the panel, I believe it was, with uh, Shante Savage mm -hmm. and Maurice Joshua. And yeah. you, you talked a, a bit about, you know, what's next for Chicago house music, certainly given the uh, homage, if you will, that's been paid by, you know, these global um pop artists uh if if you will i mean they're genre bending and genre busting artists yeah. as well and um i think the discussion was was very healthy um around the opportunities and and sort of the whys of where things are today and, and particularly about chicago-based um artists and where we are with regard to where the rest of the industry is. So I'm curious, um, since then, 
you've had a couple of other interactions occur. Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about who else you talked to while you were here in Chicago for the house festival. Yeah, I was there for that night and it was, uh, you know, it was eye-opening. It was really fun. It was great to be in the room with all these people that I, you know, whose music I venerate and whose DJing I admire. That was a trip. Uh, it was really, uh, you know, it's, I'm not the speechless type very often, but I was pretty like, I was just like, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> because they were all just yelling at each other. <laughs> like the Like people who have known each other all their lives will do. Yes. And uh, yeah, so being part. So actually, that was actually the best part for me was that yeah. it was getting to witness this like, oh, they've it, all known each other for years and years and years. They can just say whatever. Like, it's not personal. It's like, you know, it's family. And that yeah, was, it goes on all the time. To witness. Um, and it kind of like, you know, bolsters my admiration for a lot of that music. So um while I was there, I got to shake hands with Vince Lawrence because I was the second to last panel. And then it was Vince talking to Patrick Moxie. Uh, uh, and of course, things got real live because Farley showed up right before that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what fun that was. Really fun. And so, um, you know, I had talked to Vince for like two and a half hours for The Underground is Massive. So I went and shook his hand. I was like, I just wanted to say hello to you. I've got a car waiting, but you know, I gotta, I gotta at least like meet you in person. And so I flew home the next day, um, and I maybe I get home in the mid afternoon, and uh, by early evening, I get a message from Vince saying, uh, 20 artists are going to sue Tracks Records, and here's the lawyer's number." So I immediately pitched Rolling Stone and they pretty immediately said yes. And then we waited a month for the actual filing to take place. But that's when I started to work on it. I worked on it pretty, you know, I did a couple of rewrites. It had, uh, you know, my editor, John Dolan, uh, made a lot of good suggestions and, you know, just helped shape it into something that was a little bit more, I think, I'm not like a news writer per se that way. And he's not always a news editor. So it took a little bit of work, but it, so the, the time that it took for the filing to take place kind of worked to our advantage. Um, and the lawyer went over it and, you know, we ascertained a lot of things and reworded a lot of things. And then we had to wait until the filing to get a comment from the defendant, uh, Rachel came. And so we did that. And then we updated it. So that's where it stands. It's basically, at this point, that piece is a couple of weeks old. And I'm not sure if there has been much or any movement on the filing itself. So I, I, th- there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, I want to go, go back to this moment where you decide to pitch Rolling Stone. Yeah, it's immediate. I I see that my eyes fall out. I have been hearing these. So we didn't get to let me let me let me do a timeline thing here, which is explaining where I get how I get to the to the second book, 
because this is important in, in, in telling the story. Um, I, you know, I did this, I did Sign of the Times. I worked in Seattle as an editor and writer and back and forth between Seattle and New York. And in New York in 2012, EDM mania is going on. And I realized this is the book I should be writing. So or, or 2011. And so in 2012, I sell the proposal and the book's published in um, May of 2015. Uh, the Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And it starts with Chicago and Detroit, but it moves a field. And I would, I remember being really clear when I was, you know, interviewing people. Like, I remember telling Derek May, like, this is not the Chicago house story. This is not the Detroit techno story. This is how, you know, I'm going to talk about that stuff. But I'm like, the timeline is going to take us to modern day EDM. Like, that's that's the march this is on. And everybody understood that. So that, so I wrote that book and while I was writing it, of course, I came across all kinds of allegations about Larry Sherman and Trax records. And some of them were in print, some of them were in secondary sources, and some of them were from my interviews. And I included many of these in the draft that I turned in. And then we did the legal read. And are you familiar with a legal read? I I have yes. Okay, have. I'm going to explain this to the to the listeners, to our audience. The legal read is when the lawyer for the publisher sits down with you and goes over it with a fine tooth comb and finds anything that can be actionable, meaning anything that can be that somebody can sue you over any any hint of libel, any hint of of you know misrepresentation misrepresentation that's actionable by law. So we had to get, this took two weeks with the underground is massive because as the lawyer put it in my favorite comment, anybody has ever made about my writing. This is a very dense manuscript with an enormous amount of criminal activity. She couldn't believe how many people admitted to taking drugs because that's not what usually happens in books. You no. usually don't interview people and they admit all their drug taking. Oftentimes you're dealing with people who have become professionals in some sense, and they don't want that on their record in some way, you know? Indeed. <laughs> Whereas with ravers and party promoters and DJs, that stuff is very much part of the territory a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. And so, and particularly with what we can broadly term the rave scene, incidentally, in the early nineties, the, Precision, the Precision Warehouse, where the where Trax Records were uh, making their records, manufacturing their records, they would use that basement as a rave spot. I talked to people about this for the book. Yeah, yeah, not a lot of stories there, but pretty interesting. Not, no. So anyway, I have all of these, you know, and and at this point, Larry Sherman's alive. So the lawyer is going over all of this and it's just like, we got to get rid of all of these specific claims about Larry Sherman or Trax records. And so we had like, you know, we reworded it. I was sorry to lose it, of course, but I was just like, come on, everybody knows this because everybody in dance music seemed to know it, seemed to be familiar with intimate with these allegations that Larry Sherman was signing people for no money or little money and then never paying them again, paying them 1500 bucks, make a record. And that's it forever. Yes. Meanwhile, 
licensing and sub-licensing going on like going crazy. On. Yeah. So I, you know, Pierre told me about this. Uh, I talked to Vince about this. I talked to Marshall Jefferson about this. And I had quotes in the book. And we had to get rid of them. So when this comes along, when Vince tells me this is going to happen, I'm like, I have half my reporting done. And I did. I put a lot of the stuff that was taken out of the book right into the piece. Very good. Very good. So you get to the point where you've pitched, it's accepted. Then we wait a month for the filing. Yeah. You waited for the filing. Because there are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people with a lot of lawyers and everything has to line up. And so for um, Chicago, this allegation is one that has certainly swirled. And what do you think prompted the timing of now for this to to be? Sorry, not Adonis. Um, Robert Owens and Larry Hurd had recently been you know recently been awarded their masters they had sued for back pay and were awarded their masters and it appears that something similar might you know be you know happening here we don't know but um from the same uh publishing house and labels or different well, they were they sued Tracks and they they were awarded their they were they got their award from Tracks um, in some fashion. Okay. So you know that's a very it's hard to say. It's just impossible. Precedent. Yeah, powerful precedent has been was set by that. Yes, and that was two months ago. So I think I, I mean my understanding of it, and I asked everybody. I well, I mean, I was just like. Has the, you know, has the success of the Beyonce record made everybody more like aware of like, mm-hmm. it's time to get ours. And they were like, nah, this was in, this was in motion long before that. And I Absolutely. totally believe it. I mean, it, a lawsuit takes a long time to get going. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a bombshell for sure. I mean, I guess that sounds self, uh, it sounds a little maybe self-praising because I wrote it, but like it was a bombshell for me to get that communique from Vince and, you know, doing the reporting. I talked to some, I talked to a couple of people on background as well for like to bolster some of the, you know, the, things the that people I didn't quote where I was like people who had told me things over the years. And I was just like, are, is this true? And they were like, yeah, like, eyewitnessing certain things, things I don't want to go into because those people are on background, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I had conversations when inviting Vince to participate in the uh, panel discussion as well uh, around the subject. Certainly um, we're a show that is intended to, to capture these narratives from the first person lived experiences. But I think the opportunity for you to, give it a journalistic treatment was certainly the right hands to put this uh, story in. And that means a lot to hear because, you know, there's, there is that imposter syndrome that you sometimes deal with as the white guy writing about black music. Um, and certainly there is, 
you know, there's an argument. Like I remember being uh, watching Tiffany from the tribe doing the panel before me and just thinking, Jesus, I'm not that good, you know? <laughs> like she she was just like, oh, wow, you're just much better at this than I am. But, uh, you know. Walden from, uh, yeah. Co-founder yeah, of the tribe, amazing job. And so that was that was a little like, okay, yeah, I gotta be, I gotta be on my game here. Um, but I, but you know, writing the piece, there's obviously a lot of knowledge there and a lot of passion on my part. I like, I what I turned in was much longer and had a lot mm -hmm. more stuff in it. My editor was just like, you know, this is interesting, but we have to like keep this focused. You know, this has to be, and this is this this is news, and we have to treat it as news. And this isn't like, you you know, this isn't going to be like a magazine profile kind of a piece. Right. So we so, and it was the right move because a longer piece like that would have lost people. I think having it much more hard hitting and newsy is, was much more the way to go. And we were waiting up until the last minute because we had to see the filing, and so yeah. the filing comes in, and it was like. There were certain things that we had cut because, you know, maybe it was a little strong and it was like it was even stronger in the filing. So we included those quotes. Well, so many have waited for this. It's certainly been one of the uh, early lessons of house music. You, you had many uh, who even on that day of our panel back in September talked about they wouldn't have done it any differently because the, they learned through the school of hard knocks right. some of these dimensions of of everything from you know copyright and publishing laws to how to cut a record deal right totally yeah it's true it, 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 i mean you there i mean you can i i do understand the argument of well i got screwed on a record deal but it gave me an international dj career that's a that's maybe a plausible argument you can make, but like, you shouldn't have been screwed. No, no one should ever like, should be taken advantage of. No, nobody. And the, I mean, and the kind of obvious thing too is like, the racial dynamics of this are so unseemly. Well, there, there's been being here in Chicago on yeah. a uh, ongoing basis and mm -hmm. and you see these mm -hmm. um, things happen firsthand and and people either choose to distance themselves from it mm -hmm. or they um, get full in and and get either burned or like you said walk walk away with um, a, a new global DJ career but What's yeah. interesting about um, Chicago and some of the other points that were shared on that uh, day in September, uh, particularly with Patrick Moxie being our uh, closing discussion in the fireside chat between he and Vince, is this notion that Chicago artists, um, the originators, if you will, of the genre, have not necessarily mustered the level of economic success that we see others um, in some of the subgenres of, of, right. of house music experience, um, particularly as it relates to these uh, global festivals and concerts and appearances, yeah. as well as other record releases. Well, I remember what I remember uh, from that panel, especially was uh, Farley in the audience. And, you know, pushing this topic, pushing this question about like, you know, 
about the racial dynamics of superstardom in dance music, essentially. And I couldn't, the, the thing that I kept thinking about and still do is, and, and it's such an obvious sort of thing to pick, to, to pick up on, but it's Wake Me Up by Avicii. Now, Wake Me Up by Avicii is actually Wake Me Up by Aloe Black, who's a black singer-songwriter. And you don't see his name anywhere on the packaging of that record. His name isn't to be seen. It's him singing, and it's his song. So, you know, I think that tells you everything. It um, it, it says a lot, and, um, you know, there's current events uh, going on by artists now that have, uh, you know, questions on, on both sides uh, from an economic standpoint when, when people choose to speak out about um, certain uh, things that they've experienced and encountered firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there's a, there's a, a way to do it. Right. And and there's a way to avoid doing it. Right. But we we see a an interesting dynamic, particularly around artistry, right? And in, in the music industry in particular. You were talking earlier about economics, and there was another thing that I was thinking about, which is when I this is not something that was in the piece, but one of the things Marshall Jefferson told me that has really resonated for me is there are not a, there are not a lot of rich people in dance music and i think overall that's very true it's not as been it's not as remunerative a, a genre historically as has been you know rock or even like you know rock or hip hop or disco or r&b where it's like you could sell stars to a certain degree in a way that is less easy to do with dance music and dance music has always had that you know it's always been the disrespected younger sibling of the music industry, always. So there's a sort of in baked in sort of thing there where people expect to be gypped, to be, that's a bad word, but you know what I mean, to be like ripped off because that's kind of the nature of, of the, in, the small indie industry. Um, you know, across genre, but in particular in dance music, because so many big dance records are flukes. Most of them, many of them, you know, a great percentage of them. You never know where those records are going to come from. You you really can say it has been historically an unpredictable uh, genre, uh, particularly as the music industry itself has shifted away from radio play being, you know, core and essential to right. to making a hit to um, you know anything uh, i mean the sky's the limit in terms of what can influence what becomes a hit whether it's the celebrity of the dj that plays at, at a mega festival or um whether or not you know there's an artist uh that contributes um either a mix or a sample to it um there's no no telling but what is certain and constant seems to be that um, it is a um, musical art form uh, formed and influenced by African-American artists, right? And when 
Um, we look at the history of African-American artists, the uh, exploitive nature that the music business has on, on these art forms originated by um, black people. We tend to see these kinds of questions, you know, that are raised. How do you, how do you predict what's going to be a, a hit? How do right. you know if a artist has been remunerated appropriately and That's you're right. not participating in the further exploitation of that artist? There's, there, there's one other point that I think is worth making. Please. And I don't necessarily apply it to the case that I wrote about, but I will apply it historically. I think this is a good framework to think of it in. So many of the important indie labels of, you know, going back were mobbed up. There was a heavy gangster presence in the record industry all the way back. It goes way back. Because it's so lucrative. Right. It's lucrative. It's cash cleaning. It's cash business a lot of times. Back in the day, it was a cash business because you were literally dealing with jukeboxes. You were taking the money out of the jukeboxes. The mob was all over that. And so there was also there were also certain, you know, historically important record executives like Morris Levy, who, uh, you know, like Sugar Hill Records, the early rap label, the tracks records of hip hop. Yes. You know, they were like they were completely mobbed up. So there is that precedent to take in mind, too. A lot of times the reason blacks were being ripped off is they couldn't do anything about it without, you know, getting roughed up. Intimidation. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that was necessarily the case with tracks records, but that, but historically that's really important to consider. That, that is an important consideration. And and maybe we'll spend some time in the future talking about what was that factor on the tracks circumstance. Um, Speaking of which I've got one of uh I, I happen to have bought a record or two from tracks. I've got Master C and J. I don't recall whether or not they were party to uh, the the suit, but um, this one was When You Hold Me by Master C and J, who are friends of the Vintage House show they've been on. Uh, so hopefully they're watching and, uh, and have an awareness of what's going on there as well. In the last few minutes, so I did want to find out from you what is next for Michelangelo Matos. Uh, it's a good question. I'm working on a few things. Oh, well, I guess the, the obvious answer to that is my Substack, which I've been doing now for a few for a couple of months. In fact, I sent out the second uh, post uh, the morning after the panel from the yeah. hotel. Okay. Um, so that and that one is keyed actually to the history of the house sound of Chicago because it's an introductory one. But it's Michelangelo A E L Michelangelo and it's called Beat Connection. And my gambit there is that I write about DJ sets mostly, uh, DJ sets and the DJs who uh, make them. So I'm so I have a lot of a lot of interviews with DJs from my second book. I did nearly 400 interviews for that book. And so I will be running DJ Q&As occasionally from my archives, but a lot of uh, just a lot of writing about mixes in various ways. The most recent, the one that's up now is about uh, the Guardian in the UK ran 
a pretty good, pretty fun list of uh, the 100 best BBC music performances. And this is across TV, radio, all of the channels. So there's a wide variety in there. It includes three essential mixes, Daft Punk, Optimo, and Andrew Weatherall from 93, plus the uh, Marianne Hobbs, uh, Breeze Block, uh, what's it called? Uh, um, the Dubstep Wars show from 2006. And then there's a live performance by 808 State and a guy called Gerald. And it's pretty pretty fun to hear like somebody live singing the hook from Voodoo Ray, which is... Indeed. <laughs> yeah. To actually hear somebody singing it full-throated and not have the sample truncate the way it does on the record is pretty cool. Well, we are... Um certainly going to share that out with our audience so that they can check it out. Um, certainly we will also share uh, the titles of your two books, three, Th the three books. I three think books. The most recent. Oh, so in order, uh, sign of the times, part of the 33 and a third series that Bloomsbury publishes. Yeah. Um, uh, and the ground yeah. is massive. How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, and then most recently is Can't Slow Down, How 1984, uh, how 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, which includes an, yet another recap of the Chicago House origin story. Uh, and and uh, after all, Trax Records is founded in 84. And indeed it was, and is uh, certainly one of the mirrors we hold up uh, when we look at that history of house music, Michael Angelo Matos, did I get it right? Matos, Matos on, on the end. Um, your main man, Mega, it's been an honor and a pleasure and um, a learning journey as well. Uh, speaking with you for this episode of the Vintage House Show, we're here every Wednesday night. Uh, 10 p.m. Central Time on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1. We're also uh, available on all the podcast platforms where you enjoy your podcast, as well as uh, streamed and available on demand, Facebook Live, twitch.tv slash The Vintage House Show. Any place that um, besides the Substack we can check you out, Michelangelo? I write DJ previews and or reviews every week for the New Yorker's nightlife section. And I write uh, pretty frequently for other places. Uh, TheCurrent.org, which is a local Minnesota public radio music station. I write a lot about Twin Cities music history for that and books about or involving uh, local music. So I do a lot of things for them as well. And, uh, and uh, I do a fair amount of like uh, when Rolling Stone does a big list, I'm often among the contributors to those. Very good. Well, we thank you for spending time with us and, and thank for your you. story. We'll also share the link. If you haven't read it, the uh, story is on Rolling well, Stone dot com about the uh lawsuit and the alleged uh fraud and copyright infringement on behalf of tracks records ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in thank you for buckling up for this ride with your main man mega and the vintage house show 
crew on behalf of DJ Lori Branch, executive producer and curator Lauren Lowry, uh, and the entire Vintage House crew will look for you next Wednesday. And if you missed this episode, of course, check us out wherever you tune in on your favorite uh, podcast platforms. Your main man, Mega, signing off. Thank you again, Michael, Langelo, and uh, be careful out there, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Another classic episode of House Show, the premier talk show documenting the business and history of house music.